Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this IFG event on how ministers approach leadership in partnership with the ESRC and the University of Southampton. It's great to see people here in the room, even if you're just here for the air conditioning. Um, <laughs> my name is Tim Duran. I'm an associate director here at the Institute leading our work on ministers. Um, I'll give a bit of an intro to the project and what we're going to talk about. I'll introduce you to our panel and then we will kick off with a short presentation. So for a couple of years now here at the Institute, we've been working with the University of Southampton on an ESLC-funded project uh, to get more out of our Ministers Reflect archive, which has, we were talking earlier, we're not entirely sure how many now, we've lost track, but we think at least 120 interviews with Ministers who served under Thatcher, Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron, May and now Johnson. Um, and the report we're discussing today is one of the first products of this collaboration, uh, which looks into the different ways ministers approach their jobs, and particularly how they approach working with and leading the civil service. Uh, so to discuss all of this, we've got a brilliant panel here. I'll introduce you. So from left to right, uh, Dr. Jess Smith, lecturer in politics at the University of Southampton. Dr. John Boswell, associate professor in politics at the University of Southampton. Margot James, who was a minister at Bayes and DCMS and is now the executive chair at WMG, which is at the University of Warwick. And Dame Una O'Brien, who was, a permanent, was the permanent secretary at the Department of Health. Um, John and Jess, as I say, are going to give a presentation of, of the findings of, of their recent report, which is available on our website. And then um, Margot and Una will share their reflections on, on what John and Jess have found. We'll have a bit of a discussion amongst the panel, and then we'll open up to questions. Um, so we'll kick off in a second. Just a couple of housekeeping points. There will be lots of time for Q&A. If you are online, uh, please do feel free to send in your questions now. We've got someone monitoring them, so I'll see them here on the iPad. And uh, in the room, I think we will have a mic when we get to Q&A, so uh, just wave your hand and a mic will come to you. Uh, we are also live tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG ministers, so if you'd like to join the conversation there, please do. With that, I'm going to hand over to John and Jess. Fantastic. Thanks, Tim. Um, and thanks, everyone, uh, for coming uh, in person and online. Uh, I'm delighted to do things in person again, um, but also as someone who uh, researches and advocates for hybridity in Parliament, I should also be very pleased about hybrid events. Um, so, so as Tim mentioned, I, I want to talk a little bit at first about where this report came from, which is this collaboration with uh, the IFG and us as academics, so me and John from the University of Southampton, as well as Dr. Daniel Devine from the University of Oxford, who uh, has been involved in the project and the report. And we knew that IFG had this you know, brilliant database um, at their fingertips and available to all of you publicly of interviews with ministers from a range of seniority and across all of these administrations. And what we wanted to do is apply our academic lens and methods to this data to really begin to see what we can do with it. And then in turn, what this analysis can tell the IFG and their audiences, you here today, about the ministerial experience. And the implications for this for how ministers may prepare for office, as well as how officials may help them to do so. And indeed, uh, prepare themselves for their incoming minister, as I'm sure many officials have had the experience of uh, recently and will again very soon, I'm sure. Um, so we applied a multi-method approach, uh, both using automated techniques to analyse the interviews quantitatively 
and a qualitative approach exploring the themes and patterns in how ministers spoke about their role. And we found this treasure trove of data in the interviews, and there's far more analysis that could be done and we want to do, which we're happy to chat about. But for this report, we wanted to focus on this question of management. So how do ministers manage their departments? And how do they see themselves as managers? In particular, how they view that relationship with their civil service. So before I pass on to John, who'll talk a little bit more about our framework and the qualitative analysis, I want to start with our broad analysis, which hopefully I have on some slides. Yes. Um, so we started with some automated text analysis, taking all of the interviews together and studying the broad patterns in the data. And we started out by asking, well, what are ministers talking about? And we were particularly interested in who they talked about together. So when ministers speak about the different elements of their jobs, which, of, which aspects most often occur together? So this graph shows us basically the connections between the different elements of a minister's jobs. And the bolder the lines between the words, uh, between these elements, the more often these words occur together in the interviews. And there's three notable findings we think from this. Firstly, is we see that people is really central in that graph connecting the department, policy, civil service, and private office. And that's reflected in the qualitative analysis. It's about that importance of personal relationships for the day-to-day -day work of ministers. And IFG work has shown this before, that it's that crucial role of the private office in aiding ministers in the daily management of their time and resources. A second notable feature is the sidelining of parliament. So ministers seldom seem to associate civil service in their departmental role with parliament. And when they do mention it, there seems to be a kind of frustration in the interviews about having little support to connect those two hats that ministers wear between department and parliament. And the last notable feature is the dense connections to a substantive policy focus. So that reflects the common focus of the nitty-gritty policy role that comes out in the interviews and that ministers see as their core business. Not only do they seem to see policy as their core key focus, but they share a belief in the importance of setting their priorities from the outset to stay on top of the policy agenda. So once we did this sort of initial analysis of, okay, what are ministers talking about? We were also interested in how they are talking about it. So in our initial quantitative analysis, we looked at the sentiment of ministers when they talk about the civil service. So essentially, we looked at um, the sentiment, i.e. is it positive or negative, of the 20 words around civil service in all of the interviews. So the graph on the slide shows if each minister was more negative or more positive about the civil service. Each point is color-coded according to minister's party. Obviously, omitted the names so that no civil servants in the room will leave <laughs> with a grudge. Uh, and we can basically see from this that actually there's a huge diversity in how ministers are talking about the civil service. You know, there's no clear pattern in overall positivity or negativity with a basically even split between those who fall towards the more negative or more positive side. So I'll now turn to John, who will talk about this diversity in approaches and reflections in more detail, about how the different types of ministerial styles and management show in the interviews. Yeah, great. Thank you, Jess, for that. Uh, great kind of overview. Um, and I'm going to pick up where that last slide left off. So this kind of the positive and the negative sentiment towards the civil service that we found through the automated text analysis really jived with what we were finding in a, a much deeper 
qualitative dive into the archive. So sitting there beavering away just upstairs, reading <laughs> hundreds of interviews um, over the course of the last few months. And um, to kind of make sense of this, this, this um, discrepancy, we turned to some, a framework from the literature and management studies on leadership. And the distinction made here is between a transactional kind of leadership and a transformational kind of leadership. So transactional leadership is about managing individual performance. So it's about sanctions and rewards for uh, sanctions for, for poor performance and rewards for good performance. It's about trying to get control over that, how individuals perform. Um, and as in terms of translating this into the kind of work of ministers, we saw different kind of flavors of, of a transactional approach. So one is a, a kind of um, almost a combative approach uh, that sees the civil service as a potential obstacle to reform to as a kind of rival almost uh, and, and something to be managed in that way. And that was reasonably rare uh, tended to be some of our older uh, ministers who've been experienced um, for, uh, earlier periods of government. Uh, there were also ministers who took on a more managerial kind of uh, perspective, took some, a kind of private sector ethos about alignment of, of goals uh, and incentives. And then lastly, and probably most commonly, and certainly most commonly of, of recent ministers, uh, is a kind of risk management approach, a concern about political flack and the civil service or the, the department that a minister manages as being a potential source of, of that risk to be managed and controlled. Uh, and so Liam Fox, uh, I quote there on the screen, is a kind of example of that, um, that latter form flavour of transactional leadership. Uh, and he talks about his private office. So, so harking back to the, uh, the initial slide that, that Jess showed, I mean, one of the very strong themes across ministers reflect is how important the private office is. But when we look at the different styles of, of leadership, we can see that it's important, and everyone agrees it's important, but they actually have different ideas about what it should be doing or what the, the expectations are of that private office. Um, and so for Liam Fox, the private office was... You know, he was concerned, he wanted it to be personally loyal, right? He wanted to be, have control over the people in it um, and express some frustration about that. Uh, transformational leadership, on the other hand, is a, a kind of more about a team building kind of culture and ethos. So less about individual management and more about building a team culture. And there were really two ways we found to go about this. One, reasonably rare, was a kind of drawing on recent trends in, in management around collaborative engagement, innovation, uh, which some ministers reflected on. But much more common was a kind of on-the-job, slowly getting there, incremental, kind of slow-burning approach to building relationships of trust and rapport within departments. Um, and so Alistair Darling was a good example of the latter, and uh, he reflects on the private office in a different way. So for him, the private office was really important, but it was important in kind of inculcating him into the departmental culture and to understanding how things worked, to understanding what levers he could pull and how, how things operated. Um, and so the, um, these approaches, um, and we, we talk about the private office to kind of give you a sense of how it actually matters. So, so these categories taken from a kind of academic framework, but what do they actually matter in to, to practice? So one conclusion we draw from this 
is thinking um, to you know, the kind of most of the people in the room and in the audience uh, who will be people who work with ministers. Right? So it's about how do we draw on this, these, these findings to think about how to cater to the needs of different kinds of ministers with different styles. So we think our analysis provides a useful tool, a toolkit for that, for thinking about ways to you know, manage the private office, ways to uh, manage workflow, the, the filling of red boxes, you know, all the practical things like that, and that different ministers have, have different, fall into these different patterns of different preferences. Um, and the second point, um, and we, we, can talk, we, we can talk much more about um, this element, the kind of, I mean, Jess already gestured to the fact there was no clear pattern based on kind of party. There's also no clear pattern based on gender, uh, no clear pattern based on kind of uh, personal background. Um, but one thing we do kind of have enough evidence for looking through the archive is that more diversity in ministerial appointments leads to or links to more diversity in management styles. And there's good reason to think that that's a really good thing for government, to have a diversity of styles to respond to the diversity of challenges in uh, you know, the government actually faces, uh, the different roles and responsibilities associated with ministerial appointments. So I will end on that note cool. and pass back to Tim. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Great. Well, so, Margot, perhaps if we can start with you. How does that tally with your experience of being a minister? Do you recognise yourself in there? Um, you, you are in there. You're, you. you're, you're, you're formed part yes. of the database. So. We can give you your score. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was psychometric testing uh, part of your research. Um, I, do rec I definitely recognise elements of, um, of what you've reported. And um, as Tim knows, I'm a great fan of the series. And I think... Um, it should be uh, suggested reading for all incoming ministers. And you have made the job so much easier by providing this very useful and valuable um, synopsis. Um, one of the questions you pose, um, you know, how do ministers manage their private office, manage their civil servants, um, immediately made me question, looking back particularly to my first departmental role at Bayes, um, do we, do we manage or are we managed? Mm -hmm. um, because there was a strong sense of being managed mm. by the department via the private office that dawned on me after I'd been in post for about six months. And in a sense, if it's your first departmental role, um, you, do, you do need a degree of managing because the policies... And the programme of government, unless you come in, I didn't come in with a new government and a new mandate. And I think that, that makes a difference. Mm. Most ministers don't, of course, because of various reshuffles. So you usually get this role partway through a government, as I did. And it's your responsibility as the incumbent minister to take up the reins immediately from your predecessor, even if that means appearing at the dispatch box, answering questions the very next day, which happily in my case didn't happen but that does happen to some ministers so you do need to be managed to to a certain extent um that's number one point i think the comments about choosing your private office are all well and good i think that would only really apply if you were a secretary of state i don't think a junior minister could come in and just say i want to choose my own private office especially in the middle of a government's term 
Um, and also, I think if you were to replace wholesale your private office, you would lose a lot of the expertise that you would really rely on in the early days or early, early months of your tenure. Um, the private offices in, that I inherited in both Bayes and DCMS were, were very different, partly a reflection of the different cultures within those two departments. They were an interesting contrast, um, Bayes being very much bigger. When I joined, they were trying to suddenly absorb the Department for Energy and Climate Change as well, on top of what was already quite a large brief. Um, so there was an awful lot of change going on within the department. Um, but it, it was more of a sort of oil tanker um, in terms of getting any change through it versus DCMS, which was much more nimble, much smaller, smallest department in government, um, quite fast on its feet, always kind of feeling slightly insecure that, you know, would a new government come in and abolish it? Because sometimes mm -hmm. that was always talked about, particularly in the Conservative Party, when there's a mantra of reducing the size of government. Um, so it's a very different beast. And the, and the private office reflected that. It was younger, um, slightly smaller, for about five or six people rather than six or seven. Um, and, but they, they had, and more entrepreneurial. And I felt more confident, I suppose, as I'd already been a departmental minister for 18 months. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew more what I was doing. Another um, comment I'd make about um, too much change too soon and also inheriting policy. I'll just give you, leave you with one huge example of when that happened to me when I got to DCMS and as part of my responsibilities as digital minister for the creative industries in digital um, was the huge um, legislation introducing the GDPR into UK law via the Data Protection Act. And this had just um, finished its passage through the Lords. It started in the Lords. Um, and it was uh, a, a very challenging bill if you knew very little about data protection. I had been in business many years, so I had a little knowledge about data protection in business. And to be honest, I knew enough uh, to know that I wanted that to be somebody else's job. <laughs> uh, and so... But yeah. I was shocked to find that this was my job. <laughs> and I was fortunate. Um, it was really not so much the private office that was helpful to me in this role, so much as the outstanding officials in that small team at DCMS who were um, amongst the best civil servants I ever worked with. Um, and I managed to master the brief and take the bill through the rest of, the, uh, of its passage. Um, Interestingly, on policy, and I'll shut up in a minute, on policy, to what extent can you influence policy at the level I was at? Mm. Um, once you knew what you were doing, you, I managed to influence policy a lot in a few spaces mm -hmm. um, and then not at all in many others, if I'm honest. Mm. But um, with um, the data protection legislation, the government's objectives were, were really to remove all the amendments that have been successfully tabled in the Lords. Because really the government had just lost its majority and um, it, you know, it, it was very worried about getting through, things through Parliament. Uh, and I was very passionate about some of the amendments I wanted to keep and I was able to do that. And um, the, um, what we called the child-friendly design code was incorporated into the 
data protection legislation in, in, in common with quite a few other things that I chose to incorporate. Um, a lot of that depends on your Secretary of State and Number 10. If they strongly disagreed as a minister at my level, you wouldn't be able to do it, but um, they were otherwise engaged, which, which a lot of the time they are. Um, and if they're relatively hands-off, you could, you could get a lot done, and I did. Um, and there's several examples of that. And then several examples where it was like hitting your head against a brick wall. Mm. Um, the, the biggest uh, example, whether you agree with it or not, was the change I brought about in the department's policy. Often it is the department's policy as well as the government's policy, by the way. Um, and the department had a strong view about regulating the internet platforms, and that was, it shall remain self-regulated. And I profoundly disagreed. And it was a um, a roundtable with third-party stakeholders that really reinforced my view, particularly the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. They were very informative, indeed. Really underlines the necessity of ministers working with outside groups of experts, mm. as well as the wonderful resource that is the civil servants in terms of the policy that they options that they present. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you very much for those reflections, and I'm sure we'll get into yeah. some more of the detail over the next few minutes. So, Una, if I could turn to you now, reflecting on John and Jess's presentation, um, do you recognise those different sort of ministerial archetypes? Did you mm. deal with transformational and transactional <laughs> ministers during your time in the civil um, service? Certainly, yes, and, and everything in between. <laughs> um, well, I will come to the detail of your, yeah. your question in a moment, Tim, but first of all, I just wanted to congratulate everyone who's involved in the archive and our colleagues from Southampton University, because as a historian by trade, uh, I think this is an absolutely fantastic resource. And I think it's uh, evidence of, of long-term thinking, actually. Some 10 years ago or more, some people sat down and made a decision to do this, and its value has grown in time. And I can only see it being more important and more helpful as the future um, goes... Uh, it, the future interviews are done. The check is so, in the post. Thank, well, uh, well <laughs> I will own up to it, having really discovered the easy accessibility on your website to being, a, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure <laughs> going in and I've saved oh, yeah. some up. I've grouped them. Um, <laughs> but I suppose I've most enjoyed reading the interviews with people who were ministers in the Department of Health mm. while I was there. Mm. And it's been, I have to say, a very enriching uh, and revealing experience. There have been moments as I've read those interviews when, I've, uh, when I may have been working quite closely with one of the ministers where I thought, I wish I'd known that that's what you thought or what, why couldn't we have a better understanding about that issue or the issue, this issue at the time? Um, and maybe when we talk about how we can translate these insights into practice later... Um, we can come back to that because I think it's more than just of uh, important though the academic interest is. It's how do we turn this into something that's really going to be helpful for the next generation of ministers and civil servants. Absolutely. So, um, yes, and I've, I've got certain ones saved up for over the holidays as well. <laughs> um, I just want to make a couple of comments on your um, presentation. At Parliament, it's a really big issue for me. I began my career 40 years ago as a researcher in the House of Commons, which I worked for two Labour MPs for two years, and I was the shadow cabinet researcher on Northern Ireland um, in the time of the hunger strikes and so on. I know it sounds like ancient history, <laughs> but, you know, there are, there's some amazing um, 
procedures about Parliament and so on, and, and the experience that you learn of working for the opposition and for people with constituencies that never leaves you. And I do agree that there is a, an insufficient attention to the wider offering of Parliament, I would say, within the civil service. And I'm, I am going to generalise, because I do think it's true, even today, and something that we need to do more about. I think there's a too easy uh, link between, well, because we know about legislation, we help ministers to make legislation, we help to get it through both houses, um, we're the specialists in that, so we know about Parliament. But actually, there's a much wider and richer resource there, even uh, uh, underutilised on policy. Mm -hmm. And it's part of an agenda of things that I think really need, needs to change in a way that... Um, could be very strengthening of the role of members of parliament. So interesting that it hasn't come, that that's an issue for ministers. I was wondering whether this was the way you'd done the research, but where's the word delivery? Mm. Um, was it just that you didn't inquire of that or, or was it nobody mentioning it? I don't know. Um, but it's a big, big word for the, the civil service. So maybe it's there in the interviews. Um, the relationship with the civil service, what you presented today is um, effectively you've taken the private office as a, uh, a microscope, a, a, as a, a window into the leadership style of the, in both cases, I think it's the Secretary of State. Um, and yes, it is momentarily revealing how they relate to their private office. Um, my question that sits at the back of that is that telling us something about how those individuals and maybe others deal with the problems that are thrown at them in their, in their office. Now, you might say, I can say it now as a member of the public, that we're bringing far too transactional a mindset to what are big, complex, transformational problems in our society. And I'll just name a few. Everybody knows what they are. Um, climate change tackling childhood obesity, um, reforming social care. I'm, I'm beginning to ask myself a deeper question now. Have we got too transactional a style across all of um, the way ministerial offices are working mm. that's impeding us from addressing these large, complex problems? Mm. Um, maybe I'm asking too much of this database to help <laughs> us with that answer and we have to look elsewhere. But I did think taking that, that window into style was extremely interesting and I'm really going to be keen to learn more. This might help you to shape the questions that you ask in the next round, particularly where you're interviewing ministers who are trying to make progress on those big um, existential problems, really. Um, so that was all I wanted to say at this point, Brilliant. Tim, and cool. pick up other themes and, and yeah. questions. Great. Well, perhaps I'll pass back to John and Jess. I don't know any reflections on what Margot and Nuno have said, but also um, you've looked at, as John said, you spent hours up in the attic reading through <laughs> these interviews. Um, what surprised you most sort of doing this work? What did you learn that um, you weren't expecting? So I have a couple of reflections on what Seth said, and that... Um, uh, just actually picking up on the last one, you know, I think that's, I think it's definitely, there is a variation in um, how not only they approach management in terms of within the private office, but also how that bleeds over into policy 
management. And I think further work we could do on the data is trying to disentangle if you know, one bleeds into the other or not. And I suspect that if you are transactional in your kind of management style, you're transactional on policy. We did have discussions of what's quite difficult to sort of then test is the success or not in some ways of that style, because we then have to make a judgment on the success or not of that minister, which can be done in a lot of ways, sure. Um, but we, we are having a conversation about if we can really say that one is, you know, kind of more successful than another. Might be difficult, but we maybe could with some, some policies. Um, and also um, think the point about parliament is really, really interesting and definitely came out in the interviews, this idea that where civil service did help with parliament is what well, we've drafted the legislation and where ministers were saying what is lacking is, well, you're not understanding that I need to, you know, go into the tea rooms and, you know, persuade people about this legislation. Mm. Um, or that actually, you know, a lot of my time still needs to be, I don't just need to turn up for questions. I need time spent around parliament. Um, and I'll, I'll leave actually, I suspect the question of do we manage or are we managed is one that John has a lot of thoughts on. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, so, so um, for sure, I mean, when you said that, it was, it, it really um, struck a nerve. For, for certain, there's a sense of one of the interesting things, the thing I'm particularly interested in is, is how ministers themselves learn on the job. And that was a really common reflection was, you know, to begin with, I felt very managed, and but mm. over time, even even as people moved portfolio and reshuffles and so on, that they established a kind of uh, almost a toolkit or a way of of uh, better navigating, getting that much quicker um, understanding mm. how to how to go about it. But so that was that was a very common kind of thread. Um, I think in terms of what surprised me, I bring it back to Margot. Also talked about the um, bringing in outside experts. And I was, as mm. uh, my preparation for today, I was reading back over your uh, interview last night, just making sure I wasn't going to say anything <laughs> <laughs> too controversial. And um, you're one of the very few ministers who talks uh, in the archive who talks much about bringing in arts, outside expertise, which was as a so my kind of day job really is as a public policy scholar, and we typically think of governance, not really government. So the really important reliance on on a wide range of stakeholders for information and advice and so on. And one of the things, I guess, you know, what you get out of an archive like this is what actually, you know, what's front and centre of people's mind, how they think about it. And what was kind of striking for me was this reliance on, a, on the civil service, mm. typically, for advice, as opposed to... I don't know whether that reflected mm. what people actually did in practice, um, but it, it reflects the way they think about mm. advice mm. and expertise, mm. that it, the civil service really was, a, for most the key source of advice, and they mm. didn't talk much. There were exceptions, mm. of which you are one, mm. um, but there, there, are not, there were not many who talked a lot about getting that expert, um, you know, outside expert influence. Um, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I want to bring in a question from online, which is from Martin Wheatley, um, and it picks up a point that you made, Margot, about um, where if the Secretary of State or indeed Number 10 are otherwise engaged, with the phrase you use, it gives ministers a little bit more leeway but Martin has posed the question almost kind of in reverse. How far is ministers' ability to lead affected by the clarity they receive or not from the prime minister about what their focus and goals should be? So I guess, does, does a sort of a PM who's looking elsewhere, is that helpful to a minister? Or if they have a clear mission for you, is that helpful for a minister? Well, it obviously varies according to the circumstance. Mm. 
But um, when I um, took the job at DCMS, I was appointed by the Prime Minister in a 15-minute sort of discussion. Um, and I asked her what she felt were the main priorities that she'd want to see me achieve on in the role. And, and she, she um, cited the data protection um, bill and, and gave me some direction as to what she would like to see us achieve out of that. So I had clarity on that. But um, to be honest, the great portfolio that you're responsible uh, for, the Prime Minister would not really have a strong view on, mm. on much of it, really. Mm. There would be whole areas where there wasn't a specific government policy. Mm. Um, and there'd be a, a sort of inertia. And um, you sometimes, to make a big change, you, you would need Number 10's approval. Often, that if the approval involves spending money, obviously the Treasury was critical as well. But there was an example, and um, I had responsibility for labour markets in my Bayes job, and there was, I did a lot in that area. Uh, and I came across this issue in my travels, I'm talking to outsiders, um, <laughs> of the non-payment of employment tribunal um, awards. So that when um, an individual had taken a company, their employer, to a tribunal for whatever breach, um, of those uh, cases that were decided in favour of the employee, um, I think I'm right in remembering only approximately a third ever got paid, or this is quite critical actually, a third didn't get paid. I really ought to have remembered that, but that's very material. But a substantial number of awards were never paid by the employer for various ruses and reasons. And um, that really got me into that area. And um, at the time, it was costing employees about £1,000 to bring any um, appeal. And that, if you think of, if you're somebody on minimum wage or low pay, £1,000 is a lot of money. It's a lot of money to everybody these days, but particularly to people on low pay. And, and I thought, well, that's really wrong. And I quite understood the motivation for why we'd introduced the fees uh, to avoid to reduce the vexatious claims which were a burden to industry but we'd gone too far so wow. I tried my best to change it mm. the MOJ weren't interested it was a source of revenue to them and they they were budgets were cut to the bone so I went to number 10 um, and I could see that the number 10 main advisor to the PM was was very positive towards what I was saying but I could also see that he wasn't going to get it changed anytime soon so that was a, a handicap because mm. the Prime Minister wasn't willing to override MOJ. Mm. Um, they were comfortable with the status quo. So ultimately, the Supreme Court gave a ruling um, because it had gone through the trade unions and they'd gone court after court after court and they, they won. So the effect of that legal decision was no fees at all. Mm. Uh, so the, whole, the, the policy objective had been completely cut down, um, anyway, it would have taken primary legislations to re reduce the fees, so they went by the board. Right. Mm -hmm. But that was just an example of where number 10 was not helpful. Yeah. Um, but there were many, several examples where they were helpful. Okay. But okay. they were, all, uh, but, and then these areas where they didn't really have a strong view, where you had a lot of freedom. Yeah. I think a common theme when uh, the ministers in the interviews talk about first being appointed is that you don't get a lot of direction from number 10. It's often a very short conversation where they say, will you take this role? Yes, great, off you go. And, <laughs> and even sometimes when they ask, they say, oh, you know, 
like, do whatever you want, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, although one of the things that we were talking about that did surprise us is actually um, the coalition had, uh, the, there was actually quite a lot of positivity about the coalition in the interviews because I think there was this a bit more certainty about what was to be delivered and kind of lines of command and things which you don't usually get in a majority government. So actually, surprisingly, people were quite positive about it. Yeah. Mm. I want to come to the questions in the room in a second, but Una, one question mm. I'd like your views on is the point about managing or being managed. Do you think the civil service tries to manage new <laughs> ministers? Oh, well, clearly, I think civil servants don't try to manage ministers, and I clearly think <laughs> that departments don't have policies. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah, it's these things are... Um, are real experiences that ministers have, and there is truth to them. There's no doubt about it. But I don't think that the... Um, I think the archive, insofar as we've got evidence, um, is really showing the complexity of the relationship with civil servants. It's not being managed. It's not departments having fixed policies where they've got the, some... Um, alternative agenda it is usually much more complex than that and I love that's what I like about the archive it starts to open up some of those um sort of you know beliefs that have got into common parlance I thought what you said Margot about the journey your journey as a minister being um the first time minister being minister in a different department but having ministerial mm. experience and whenever we um you know had to welcome new ministers into the Department of Health, it was always of interest to us if they had got prior ministerial experience because the induction was really quite different mm. from people who came with no ministerial experience. One of the things that was very, very interesting, of course, in, in 2010 was that we had ministers, including Secretary of State, at every level... Um, who had no prior ministerial experience. And I think that was a similar in 1997. Yeah. Um, so that presents a sort of different uh, challenge with the civil service in terms of how people are sort of given the chance to settle into their roles. Um, one thought that I had, having looked um, at the database and read your research, is that it is brilliant to have these reflective conversations in some period after people have left. But I do wonder whether a chance to talk things through six months in. Mm. I know sometimes the WIPs offices offer that opportunity for new ministers and I don't know what the party machinery makes available. But we don't really give ministers much support once they start. It's like you're on your own and, you know, if you've got personal resources to draw on, if you need help with managing your portfolio, then that's over to you. Mm. I did find... Um, certainly uh, with some of the junior ministers in the Department of Health that I, I was the person they turned to as the mm. permanent secretary. And I think that's only right. Mm. I think that is mm. part of your role. But this does raise the question for me about opportunities for ministers to reflect um, as they step into a more experienced job. Um, so, yeah, that's um, it's a complicated thing. And yeah, of course, people are going to think civil servants try to manage ministers, but I can never fully sign up to that. <laughs> of course, I can't. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open up for questions in the room if anyone would like to ask anything of our panel. 
Um, God, lots of arms going up, gentlemen here, and then. Brilliant, thank you. And then a um, question at the front here, and we'll take three, and then um, we'll answer them together. Oh, we've got a problem with the microphone. Um, <laughs> Alex, do you want to shout your question out? Uh, thank you. I'm uh, Alex Thomas. I work here at the Institute of Government. One of the things that jumps out at me from uh, the archive, uh, as uh, you touched on there, is ministers talk loads about their finances. They talk a bit about permanent secretaries. They occasionally talk about a bill team. Um, they don't really talk about the mass of civil servants mm. uh, who are working on delivery and implementation or other less high-profile policy areas, which I think also feeds a kind of uh, assumption amongst them. Sorry, which feeds a kind of assumption amongst some ministers and some former advisors that you can run government, you know, three and a half people in a broom cupboard in uh, mm. number 10. Uh, so I guess my question is how... How do you think you can expose that mass of civil servants and what they're doing, good and bad, to ministers so that they have a more uh, sort of informed view of how, uh, how, government, how government works? Great, thank you. So for, for the benefit of those listening online, that was a question about the fact that most ministers in the archive talk about private office and central policy-making teams rather than the wider uh, civil service. Should we stop there for now? Let's take those two questions and then we'll, we'll come back to others. So, Margot, perhaps on the mentorship question, did you ever speak to your predecessors about the role? Um, I had the benefit when I was at DCMS in that I, I took the job um, from the man who became um, Secretary of State in the same department, Matt Hancock, and um, that was a huge help um, because he was next door not that you know you were, you were, he and I were too busy to make too much of it, but it was it was definitely a help. Um, and I I can't remember what happened with the the Bayes role. I must have uh, asked the previous minister, but I can't remember that so vividly. Um, I always when I moved on from my Bayes role, I sought out my successor um, and had sort of an hour with him. Um, talking about the key issues, the priorities, and, and where I left off, type of thing, and you know, he he was, um, you know, he found that helpful. I think, I think it would be a good idea, William, to um, formalise such a process. There are a lot of ex-ministers willing um, outside of Parliament and also inside Parliament uh, in both houses, who would, I'm sure, be up for such a program. And I think it's something that possibly the cabinet office or, you know, that someone would have to take responsibility. You can't leave it to the whips, I'm afraid. Their job is to get the government's business through and look after, as well as they can, um, people with, uh, MPs with problems, either with problems or causing problems. Um, <laughs> so I don't think you can leave it to the whips, but I think it should be done. I think it's a very, very good idea in, indeed. Um, on to your question, Alex, if I just may. Um, I thought in your paper, Mark Prisk had a good idea 
of walking around his department mm -hmm. as frequently as possible, um, going and having lunch in the canteen. I admire that. Um, I didn't have time to do that very often, but at Bayes, my private office organised a few of these walkabouts, and I found them very, very helpful, going to different floors, different teams, and chatting to people. MPs are used to doing this because we've got constituents we do that yeah. sort of thing with. Mm -hmm. So it's a very good thing, um, I think, to do. And once, um, when the party conference was in Birmingham, I discovered that there was an arm of Bayes in Birmingham. Um, so I went to visit it, and I just went with no appointment at all to the desk yeah that was the reaction <laughs> that was the reaction and uh, people could barely believe that the minister was in the building but we had such a wonderful time I met so many amazing people and it was they were so appreciative at the end of it and I learned a lot yeah. um, and I cited two offices in in their space following that visit Una? um if I just take that second question first, in my experience, certainly in Department of Health over 25 years, ministers were very willing to go out and around the department, either to do a walk around or to come and speak at all staff events or at events to do with development of uh, officials who were on a particular course or whatever. So um, I think it's quite important for the DGs and permanent secretary to be intentional about that and to put proposals in front of ministers. I, I, I think it's unreasonable to expect ministers to be saying, this is what I want to do. They very often don't have uh, in their heads necessarily a sense of the size or scale or geographical layout of the department. For many years, we had and still do have in health, um, as do other government departments, a lot of officials in Leeds. Mm. Um, yeah, it was sometimes a bit of a challenge to get people to go to Leeds. <laughs> but um, on the whole, um, that there was, it was part of the partnership that ministers had with the department that they recognised it was important to be seen. I think much more challenging is in those departments that have big operational enterprises. And I'm thinking now about DWP, the prison service, mm. um, the Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Defence. That's a, a huge amount of people to get around. And I, mm. I think it needs to be very well organised. Um, the staffing departments really appreciate seeing ministers and hearing from them in person. And there's no better way, in my experience, for a minister to get the department batting for your objectives. Civil servants, just to be absolutely clear, um, uh, want to do the best possible job they can oh, yeah. for the ministerial team. That is mm. overwhelmingly their intention, their ethic and their value. And it's very heartening to see that that comes through in the in the archive. And I was I was very humbled and some, and proud to see that occur time and time again. And that is the um, ethic and the value of the civil service that is so important that we preserve into the future. Um, and I think mentoring is a great idea. Um, interestingly, there's an academic at um, Henley, uh, Andrew Professor Andrew Kakabadze who was commissioned by the um, William Raggs committee, although it wasn't under his um, chairmanship, mm. it was his predecessor, the Public Affairs and Constitutional uh, Committee, only a few years ago to do a paper on the relationship between secretaries of state and permanent secretaries. Mm. And um, obviously music to my ears, mm. he, he came, I didn't influence it at all, but he came <laughs> up with a suggestion that they should have a coach to help or access to one 
to help them um, if they got into difficulties over their working relationship because of the implications of that for the department as a whole. And we have seen a few examples of where that's gone very badly wrong and how dysfunctional that's been. So I thought his, his research was quite interesting and does touch on the theme you're mentioning there of mentorship. Brilliant. If it's all right, I'm going to go for another round of questions oh. and then maybe bring John and Jess in on general reflection. So there's a gentleman here and then a um, question at the back. Thanks. Um, Mark Benister from uh, University of Lincoln. Um, uh, thanks. It's been uh, really enlightening, and I think the, um, the archive is going to be really useful for uh, academics and, uh, and others, uh, certainly. Um, I had a question about, uh, I suppose, leadership and management, uh, because I think some of the terms are sort of, you know, both used at the same time. Um, and I wonder whether there's a sense that, um, and this, this touched on things that have been said, whether... Um, Sort of ministers may feel uh, constrained in how much they can lead, but also constrained in whether they are managing. And, and permanent secretaries uh, are often those that, that manage the day-to-day -day running of, of departments and so on, um, but look to ministers to uh, give strategic leadership and so on. You know, and I wondered how much that comes out in the archive, any kind of the differentiation between what we think of as leadership and what we think of as, as management. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also interested in this sort of uh, uh, whether you found any patterns. You were saying there were no clear patterns in the um, uh, in the uh, data there on party or department or individuals. Um, but I wonder whether there, whether you're looking for seeing any patterns in sort of in time, uh, in terms of whether whether so for, take for instance the engagement with the, the parliament aspect that you talked about uh, earlier, uh, Jess, is that whether you know, the, the ministers used to engage more, there used to be more expertise around Parliament, you know, uh, with, in the first set of interviews, less so now, and whether there are any other trends that we've seen that have come out over time. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And there was a question at the back there. Uh, oh, and Penny, and then, yeah, and then we'll have those three questions, and then we'll have to stop there, I'm afraid. Uh, hi, thanks very much for that really interesting talk. My name's Nat, I'm from, uh, I'm studying at the LSE. And I know you mentioned the, how the background of ministers might impact their leadership managerial styles. I was wondering if there had been any research done on the backgrounds of the civil servants they're working with and how that interaction between the two might influence the choice of leadership style used by the minister. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. Hi, I'm Susanna Brecknell from Civil Service World. Um, one theme that's come out, I think, really interesting is the role of the private office, um, not just in terms of how ministers relate to it, but actually what does the private office do for the department, for the minister, for the wider relationship with the centre. Um, I think there's a fruitful area of research for, for in that, for any, any of you, but also wonder, Margot, how much um, agency you felt as a minister to come in and say, or Bayes, we did this in my private office. Could we maybe learn from that and sort of echo it in DCMS? Because it's your point around them being different in different departments. Um, did you feel as a minister you could kind of shape them? And then I guess the, the flip side, Una, did you as, as a senior official and eventually as PermSec, did you intentionally think about how are we structuring our private offices? How are they doing it in other departments? And, you know, are you, is there a private office? I know there's the network of private offices for policy purposes, but did they ever think organisationally, should we learn from each other? Mm. Great. Thank you very much. Some fantastic questions. 
we have eight minutes left, so I'm going to try and marshal this. <laughs> see how, how we get through. So, um, perhaps on the first, the, the John and Jess, you could talk about the variation over time. First. Yeah, there's a couple of things on, on those questions about kind of backgrounds and, and time. So, so we're saying there was no clear um, on background from from this sort of initial analysis, and we want to explore it a lot more using the automate, automated analysis to kind of map on to ministerial backgrounds to see if there are differences in kind of sentiment or um, style. Definitely from the qualitative analysis, you do see that ministers talk about bringing in their occupational background into how they then manage. So you often get a minister saying, you know, well, I used to run a business, so, you know, I'm going to run my department like a business. Or I think it's Jackie Smith who talks about, you know, I was a teacher and so I had no idea how to do, like, management. I hadn't done that before, you know. Um, so there's definitely something going on in occupational background. I also want to speak very quickly about the gendered patterns. So um, the kind of traditional literature, if you like, from the academic perspective might suggest that women are more transformational because it's been seen as this kind of more communal style of leadership and management. And whereas I think there was probably um, a better balance between transactional and transformational in, the, in women ministers compared to, to men, um, some of that I think is being affected by over time in that I think there is a there is a trend towards becoming more transformational over time because it is just sort of actually, we are influenced by these things, right? And it is a kind of more trendy leadership style and kind of management style now. And that's what some of the management literature suggests. And obviously, you also see that we have more women over time because you didn't have, used to have a bigger supply pool of women. Um, and so maybe I was, I was a little surprised that maybe there wasn't such a distinct pattern in the gender patterns, but there's also so many elements going on there. As you know, saying, these things are so complex because there's also suggestions, you know, traditionally that, um, especially if we, the kind of women that were in office at a time where there were just, you know, so few women ministers that you may choose to act in a more masculine style uh, in order to kind of fulfill that role of the good minister that may be seen as masculine. And a few of the ministers did mention this kind of idea that they thought that the idea people had of a minister was this um, was this uh, masculine idea. I love the Kitty Usher quote that, you know, the, the, the ideal minister is, you know, sitting there with his wife looking after the children on a Sunday afternoon while he's doing his ministerial box, which obviously <laughs> doesn't really work for anyone's life now. Um, so I definitely think that the patterns, like, we're going to find more of them the more we delve into this data. And I definitely think that it would be really interesting to look over time. I, I'm going to use all the time, so I'll pass on. Uh, so very briefly, um, just on Mark's leadership versus management mm -hmm. question, I thought this was kind of interesting because uh, some, basically, some reflect on that and, and take that as a kind of template for how they're going to operate. But for many, particularly people who came from a private sector background, that was a source of frustration because couldn't get their hands in and really manage in the way they expected. So that was uh, a reflection that was quite common among people with a, a more managerial approach. Um, yeah, what I would, sorry, by what I mean, you know, more private sector ethos that they brought to their um, Great. department. On private office agency and your ability to shape it, Margaret. Um, well, I thought that was a really interesting question that you asked, uh, Susanna, um, about, you know, could you, you know, get from your experience of one private office and, and reshape it? I think I would have done that had I been, had I gone the other way around in my um, career. I think I, there was more I would have wanted to have taken from the DCMS private office and applied it to the Bay's sort of more process-driven office. 
I felt that the DCMS private office were more outcomes driven. Um, and, I, I, and I think I would, by the second job, have had sufficient agency to have shaped it, without a doubt. Um, I think that one of the, the, uh, the challenges for a minister is, a first-time minister, is figuring out who's reporting to who and where they all fit in. It's mm. really quite mm. opaque mm. when you come in from outside. Mm. Um, and, I mean, I really only... I'm not sure I fully understood it ever, but I, I certainly gained in understanding. And I think you've got to watch out as a minister in a, if you're leading... Um, and you're, 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 you're conscious of all the people behind the scenes as well as the people you interface with directly in the department. Um, you should be slightly watchful of a sort of young, hungry private office people um, starting to think that, you know, they've got all the answers and these officials are just so slow or so whatever. I don't know whether you ever came across that in your department, but... I was this, one of them once. <laughs> <laughs> there's a yeah. slight element of that, which I think... You have to uh, yeah. calm down a little bit as a minister if you want a happy ship. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. from the senior official point of view, you know, do you, would you try and match a private office to a, a minister? Would you? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, really, certainly in my experience, and I was principal private secretary at the Department of Transport, um, you're trying to make sure you've got the calibre of people. Usually the PPS manages the staff in the private offices overall, so you're trying to make sure you've got People get on with the ministers who are capable of what they're doing, but most importantly, can uh, maintain good, strong relationships with officials across the department. Because mm -hmm. the point of the private office is not to, is not to be the, you know, the, the um, sole entity for the minister. Of course, they've got to manage the minister's work, diary, and support him or her. But they are key conduit into the organisation. And um, being able to do that is a real skill. And um, on that point about who reports to who, I just want to say, Michael Heseltine, when I was in the um, efficiency unit in the late, some decade or other, he <laughs> insisted on every single department publishing an organogram. And he was so right about this. And it's incredibly frustrating I mean, I'm, I know a lot about government. Now I'm on the outside. I cannot find anybody, <laughs> don't know what anybody does. And that is not good enough for the public. We need to have much more transparency about reporting lines and who's responsible for what. And I think it really, really does need to change. Um, and as for the backgrounds of civil servants, thank you for that question. I don't know if there's much research on it, but within the civil service, there is a huge amount of attention to trying to get diversity, diversity of age, background, ethnicity. But also remember, we're, we're encouraging a lot of people to apply and join the civil service at different stages of their careers. And so broadening the experience and the, the social and economic backgrounds that are then available to the government of the day, all of that richness and diversity is important. But can we map it or measure it? I just don't think we're close to being able to do that. No, I agree with that. I was going to say, I mean, mm. IFG, we are interested in this, this particular issue, but very much on the kind of macro aggregate level, looking at the data that comes out of the civil service, um, rather than anything mm. comparable to ministers reflect in terms of specific individuals. And we were t discussing earlier, we'd love to do a similar programme with senior civil servants talking about their time in government, but obviously, for various reasons, they tend to be a little bit more secretive than their <laughs> ministers. Not all of them, not all of them. Yeah, absolutely. So we are nearing the end. I'm going to ask one quick-fire question, which uh, someone anonymously <laughs> posted earlier on. Um, 
to everyone along the panel, what one piece of practical advice would you give to a new minister? We might well have several in the next few weeks. So <laughs> in thinking about that bevy of, of, of new ministers coming in, what would you say they should think about on day one? Um, I think setting out clear priorities for the whole of your department or whatever part of it you're responsible to, making that clear and walk around uh, and meet people. Uh, I'm kind of interested. So the mentorship idea, I kind of like this. Mm. I mean, one of the things is the reflection uh, that often there's no instruction about what to do and often a kind of a, maybe an ego thing or a concern about image, so not asking for advice. But I would, uh, the, the ministers who reflected on having a, an actual pattern or an actual plan for that often said it was a really good thing. Great. Margot? Um, I think do some of your own research. Obviously, um, access all the expertise available to you in the department, but do some of your own research. Um, I benefited from a roundtable run here, I think in this very room, chaired by Peter Riddell, with um, the ex-permanent um, secretary from DfE and a couple of other people, very, very useful, with other ministers in the room, you know, past and present. And also, uh, Chris Mullins wrote a very good book mm. about how to be a minister. And various other people have done the same. I've read several. Chris Mullins is definitely excellent, well worth reading. Brilliant, thank you. Una? Yeah. I very much agree with setting out your priorities, but I'd add to that, be prepared to change them four, <laughs> four or six weeks later when yeah. you've read yourself a bit more into, into the job. Do not take um, the way things are presented to you or the meetings that are offered to you at face value. Think for yourself, how do I like to work? How do I like to take in information? Um, if you prefer, as a new minister, to have uh, briefings in, in person, um, if you prefer to have a lot more written material, you need to let the people around you know that that's how you want to work. And then the other very important practical thing is get a grip on your diary. There will be no limit to the number of people who will want to take up your time. You, no, no. you need to set the parameters to take care of yourself Make sure you do exercise, see your family, keep in touch with at least one friend, <laughs> and then build your job around what's left. Okay. Go read the Minister's Reflect interview of anyone that's been yeah. in your there post. There we go. Okay, that's where exactly <laughs> end. So yeah. I'm afraid that is all we have time for. We obviously could have carried on. Um, we will have a video and a sound recording of this up on our website within 24 hours. Mm. And as Jess says, check out Minister's Reflect, which is on our website. Check out the report from John, Jess and Dan, which is on our website. Uh, if anyone here is working in government and wants to send it on to any new ministers who arrive in the next few weeks, please feel free. Uh, we will be getting in touch with new ministers to offer our advice and support. Um, and so I think all that is left is to say thank you to the panel and to our events team. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Music